So if you brought your Bible with you this morning, I would encourage you to go ahead and open it up to Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. We'll be starting there. Uh, We'll finish up at the end of chapter 3 as we continue along in our study series through the book of Revelation. Uh, We are ending a section this morning uh, as we close out chapters 2 and 3 that are the letters to the seven churches throughout Asia Minor uh, that John addressed uh, this letter of Revelation 2. Before we dive in, has anybody, who all has had their allotted cup of coffee this morning? How many coffee drinkers do we have? I see several of you. Um, The rest of you, I can only assume, are naturally caffeinated, uh, or maybe you find some other way to get energy. Um, But uh, coffee is kind of a, it's a morning must for me. And my new favorite thing in the entire world right now when it comes to coffee uh, is at from our good friends at Entwine Grounds. It's called the Spicy Grandma. Has anybody had the Spicy Grandma? Okay, it's got, it's a latte with chili powder in it. It's an amazing idea, right? Like if you're looking for caffeine, plus a little kick in the back of the throat to get you going, uh, it's perfect. And so I love it, I would recommend it. Um, And uh, it's something that gets me going in the morning. Haven't had any this past week because we were out of town on mission trip. Been looking forward to getting back into the habit tomorrow. Um, But as you are coffee drinkers, some of you probably like your coffee hot in the morning, maybe hot and black with nothing in it. Maybe some of you like a little bit of coffee and a lot of creamer, but you probably still like it hot in the morning. Maybe, especially on a week like last week, if you're looking for a pick-me-up in the middle of the day, uh, you might go somewhere and get an iced coffee or a cold brew, something that's uh, uh, that can cool you off in a cold day and give you more energy. But I seriously doubt that any of you are going out and ordering lukewarm coffee. There's a few things like less appetizing than that, right? When you got a cup of coffee, you know, you freshly brewed it in the morning, uh, you take a couple of steps, something happens, something comes up. Uh, and so, you know, you go about your business and then you go back and take a drink of it a few hours later without thinking about it and you take a drink and it's just lukewarm. It's not cold, it's not hot, it's not good. Maybe you stick it in the microwave, nuke it a little while, maybe you make yourself another cup, whatever it is. Nobody likes lukewarm coffee. And there's a lot of foods like that or drinks like that. Tea is the same way, right? A lot of people like hot tea, especially in other parts of the world, but several people in America too, maybe in the middle of the night, not in the middle of the night, but before you go to bed, uh, you might drink a glass of hot tea, herbal tea to, you know, chill you out so you can go to sleep or, um, you know, in the morning, maybe you drink that instead of coffee. But in, in, in the South, we all love a nice cold glass of sweet iced tea, right? We like it either hot or iced, but again, lukewarm after all the ice is melted or after the heat has come out of it it's just not as appetizing right it doesn't sound as fun the foods are the same way I, I, I like chicken i either like it like hot and fried or cold in a chicken salad uh, paula quisenberry who goes on our mission trip every year with us she always makes chicken salad that we eat throughout the, the week uh, it's awesome makes great sandwiches but i don't want lukewarm chicken salad that sounds like a bad recipe waiting to happen you know what i'm talking about um, potato salad is the same way, right? We like it cold or hot, but lukewarm, you're waiting for bad things to happen a few hours from then, right? We don't like those lukewarm kind of things. Um, and really, when I got to thinking about like what kind of foods are the worst lukewarm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step out on a ledge here and maybe be a little sacrilegious to folks in the South, but I think Chick-fil-A fries are overrated. Don't hate me. I think they're overrated uh, because the waffle fries, they're really good when you just get them, but if they sit for like 10 minutes, they get a little cold, they turn into cardboard. Anybody else? It's okay. Jesus will forgive you if you don't like the waffle fries at Chick-fil-A, but that's the one that that comes to mind. But the worst one probably is 
eggs of any kind. Like I love scrambled eggs, fried eggs, love all of that, quiche, whatever. You know, I like that hot in the morning for breakfast, but after a couple of hours when it's been sitting out again, that's just, you're waiting for salmonella, right? You're waiting for something bad to happen if you eat lukewarm eggs. Doesn't that sound like a wonderful breakfast, a lukewarm fried egg, mmm, a lukewarm boiled egg? No, nobody wants that. It makes us literally sick to think about it, doesn't it? That's kind of what food does to us sometimes. It, it makes us actually sick when we eat something that we shouldn't have. What if I told you that Jesus gets sick about the church sometimes, gets repulsed by the worship of the church, or by the nature of the way that we approach him, or by the nature of the way that we live out our faith in him? That's what Jesus has to say to the church in Laodicea today, expressing literal nausea at the way that they were living out their faith. I told you a couple of weeks ago when we talked about Philadelphia that one of the main reasons why it's good to think about all of the churches in Revelation together uh, is that we get an idea that Jesus had a message for each of the churches there, right? And they're like the actual church in Philadelphia, the actual church in Laodicea around the time that John was writing these words that he was getting from God. It was a message for those exact people, but it's also a message for all of the church. All of Revelation is for all of the church. The church that was there when it was written, the church that will be there in the end when all of the prophecy comes to fulfillment, and everyone in between. Uh, it matters today. God's word has something to say to us today. All of Revelation is good for all of the church. It's one of the reasons why we want to study it together. And so we see passages like last time's passage when we were together two weeks ago with Philadelphia that's very encouraging. Uh, the, the letter to the church in Smyrna is very encouraging, especially people who are going through difficulty. And it's good to remind ourselves that we should celebrate wins that we should be encouraged by the gospel. We should be encouraged by the presence of God. But there are also times when we need to be corrected. There are also times when we need to face conviction, when we need to look inward and question the way that we're doing things. And that's what happens to the church in Laodicea. Jesus saves some of his harshest words for this church, but also some of his biggest promises, which we'll get to in a moment. This message, this passage, is built for a church lost in comfort and apathy. And I don't think this is a surprise to many of you, but I believe apathy is one of the American church's greatest enemies in our world today, in our particular context today. Apathy, or maybe not even apathy, but misplaced passion. Passion for things other than the gospel that we're called to. And so, that's the approach. We're going to look at this passage here in just a moment. But before we do that, let's pray together. Father, once again, we are grateful to be in your presence. We are grateful for all that you have done for us, knowing we don't deserve it. And we celebrate that in worship. And God, we're likewise grateful that you have given us your good and holy word. God, that you have spoken to us through this letter. And God, I pray that you would help quiet our, our, our busy mind, our distracted mind, and help us focus solely on what you have for us this morning. God, that your truth would be spoken, that your Holy Spirit would plant that truth within us, and God, that your truth would transform us. God, we thank you for the opportunity to encounter you through your word. And God, we ask that you, again, just be with us and help us be transformed by your word today. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 3 starting in verse 14. 
And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Laodicea was a wealthy city. One of the wealthier cities in the area in Asia Minor that we've been discussing over the last couple of months. It was known for a well-known banking center, among other things. It was so wealthy that after a devastating earthquake in 8060, there were, they were able to decline uh, assistance from the Romans who said that they would help them rebuild because they had all the resources they needed on their own to rebuild. It had many other claims to fame that kind of went along with luxury and wealth. It was home to a textile industry that specialized in the making of black wool. Uh, it was home to an important medical school that was known for its eye treatments. But one negative thing that it was known for was its water supply. One area in which Laodicea did not excel was the way that they got their water from hot springs, but it would pass through a great distance through limestone cliffs and on its way eventually lose its heat and become lukewarm. You can see the central metaphor of Jesus in this passage coming, uh, coming to like an understanding because of the nature of what actually was going on in the city. And to contrast their bad water, they had two neighbors, Hierapolis and Colossae, who had good water supplies. Hierapolis was home to a hot spring that had therapeutic waters. Colossae was home to cool, refreshing waters, while Laodicea had lukewarm water as their main drinking source. And as Jesus already is, you could see the metaphor setting itself up already. And he introduces himself to this people as the Amen. The amen, what does that mean? Like that's the word we say at the end of prayers, but what does Jesus mean when he says the amen? If you ever read in the gospels, depending upon which translation you read, uh, oftentimes when Jesus would say something profound, which he said a lot of those in the gospels, uh, he would say, amen, amen, I say to you, or it might be translated in a different translation, truly, truly, I say to you. Uh, and so that word amen, it basically means truly or in truth. Or when we say it at the end of a prayer, it basically means like, let this come to fruition. Let this become reality. Uh, let this be what actually happens. Uh, and so Jesus being the amen shows that he is the God of truth. And he's showing himself as the God of truth to a group of people who don't even really seem to know who they actually are and how lost they actually are. Uh, Jesus says to them, you think you're rich, but you're actually poor, among other things. And so he is putting himself up as the God of truth in a world where truth isn't known, to a church where truth isn't known. The Laodicean church is the main metaphor, lukewarm. Again, Hierapolis had hot therapeutic waters, Colossae, cold, refreshing waters. 
but Laodicea, lukewarm, room temperature waters. Now, again, it could hydrate you, I'm sure. You know, I'm sure it served its purposes. But there was just something about it where you just, you missed out. You know, on a really, really, really hot day when you've been working really hard, there's nothing more satisfying than a sip or even to guzzle ice cold water, right? Uh, the way that it refreshes to the point, you know, you, you let it like spill out onto your chest and cool you off. Like there's just something refreshing about that. And in the same way, in the winter, you know, there's nothing more that, that'll bring you more comfort than a nice, you know, cold, like warm glass of tea or hot chocolate or something. You know, there, there's those added benefits of things on, on either extreme with a passion that those things would have. But a lukewarm kind of middle of the road, uh, just kind of, you know, it, nothing sticks out. There's nothing bold. There's nothing, nothing notable about this water. It's just kind of there. It does its job, but it doesn't elicit any kind of reaction the way hot or cold water does. You see, in this context, both hot and cold are good. Normally, when we read scripture, we think hot, we should be on fire for God. That's the good thing. Cold means like thoughtless and, 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 and emotionless and, and disconnected. And we often take cold to mean that. But in this context, both hot and cold are good. That's when Jesus says, I wish that you were one or the other, right? I wish that you were either hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I will spew you out of my mouth. Those are harsh words. Uh, that's, that's not a kind word to say to someone. What Jesus is basically saying is, your lack of passion, your lack of resolve, your lack of boldness about the gospel makes me want to puke. It makes me want to throw up. It makes me want to vomit. Nobody wants to hear anybody say that to them, especially Jesus, right? But he had harsh words often for those who would take his name in vain and approach him in a lackadaisical attitude. There are people in scripture that are literally struck dead because they approached him that way. Our God is a holy God that deserves to be approached with passion, with boldness, with resolve, not just a ho-hum attitude. Jesus is essentially saying to this church, you make me want to puke. You see, an apathetic church is a pathetic church. And it's something that none of us want to be. It's something that is very, very, very common in our world today. Lukewarmness is alive and well in 2021. It's a low-grade reaction to everything. It's getting upset about everything, but not upset to the point that we actually do something about anything. It's complaining about everything, but never actually taking any action about anything. It's, it's having disagreements by running into our corners or our social media echo chambers and patting ourselves on the back and surrounding ourselves with people agree, who agree with us without ever taking a stand for things that really matter. Do you remember the day? Like, I'm 38 years old. I don't know if I can really remember this day, but I can, I can think back on like, maybe when this was a possibility. Like, when you and I could disagree about something with passion and then still get along with each other after we had the conversation. Like, what a novel idea, right? To be passionate about something that matters, but at the same time respect people at the end of the day. It's a wonderful idea, and it would be wonderful to step back into that reality. But part of it is, one of the reasons why I don't think we can respect people is because we never actually have the conversation in our modern era. Instead, we just hear, we, again, we go into our own echo chambers, we surround ourselves with people that uh, think like us, and I don't know if you know this or not, but Facebook knows what you like, and it gives you back what you like, and you end up seeing what you agree with. 
like go watch uh, what's the name of that that the social dilemma thank you i'm glad somebody said that the social dilemma it, it it pulls back the veil on the facebook algorithm and how they give you what you see and you end up seeing the things that you agree with because they know you're going to click on them and every time you click it's an interaction that gets them uh advertisement and money it's all driven by money all of those things work in such a way to make you happy and to make you think that everybody agrees with you and not even facebook it's it's other places like even google you know how google will, will autofill your search if you're typing in a search for something it depends on what region of the country you're in as to how that auto fills right if you're looking at something political and you start typing in something in Google in a southern state you're going to get a Republican answer if you do it in a northern state you're going to get a Democratic answer it's Google giving back to you what they know you want because that's how they make money off of you and our world does such a great job at dividing people and putting us all into echo chambers and leaving us with the conclusion that everybody else is just crazy stupid and only the people who agree with me actually have some sense and we never really engage each other and we never have the hard conversations we don't know how to talk to people who disagree with us and so we end up painting them as ridiculous stupid or our enemies enemies of the country enemies of, 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 of knowledge enemies of science whatever it might be we paint the other side as absolute idiots because we never actually interact with them how about we have the hard conversations how about we have passion about what matters and talk to people about what matters? You know, when, when I was, I, I grew up in the 90s. I'm a child of the 90s. I was born in 1983. I was right on the verge of the Gen X and millennial divide. It just depends on who you ask, which one I'm in. Um, my sisters are very much Gen Xers. I kind of view myself as an elder millennial. I don't know if that's a thing, uh, but that's what I view myself as. Uh, and we kind of look at the world differently, even being six to nine years removed from each other. But regardless, as a child of the 90s, and those of you who lived through the 90s, which is most of you in the room, right? You remember that the most popular thing in the 90s was to not care about anything, right? Like to just kind of go through life, to be cool, you know, whatever, man. You know, just to kind of, uh, just that's the way music was written. That's the way shows were written. I'll, I'll tell them myself, one of my favorite, my favorite sitcom all time is Seinfeld there are some other sitcoms out there that are okay uh, but I know it's a show about nothing it's not a nothing show like friends it's just a show about nothing just playing friends fans um, but anyway um, <clears throat> and I'm gonna tell myself on this because if you ever look at the characters in Seinfeld they were a group of people who didn't care about anybody but themselves right if you ever watch the last episode they watch a mugging take place nobody's moved to do anything and it's kind of just a, a microcosm of who they are. And in a lot of ways, it's a microcosm of who the 90s were. We were a people who cared about not caring, who wanted to just kind of check out and be cool. That's what I wanted to be when I was a kid. And, and cool didn't mean you like stuck out. It didn't mean you were a star athlete. It didn't mean you were the smartest kid in class. Uh, it didn't mean that you were the, 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 the class clown. It just meant that you kind of blended in. You had the right friends. You were popular, you were part of the crowd, but not that you didn't really stick out. You were just, you were cool, man. And everybody knew you were cool. And because you were cool, they, they liked you and wanted to hang out with you. And you never really had any conversations that mattered with anyone. You know what the Bible says about cool people? They make Jesus want to throw up. Like lukewarm makes Jesus want to vomit. 
He wants people that are passionate about something. People who are either hot or cold, not people who are just cool, go with the flow and hang out and everybody likes you. Like that's that's my like general thing. I just want to kind of blend in. Maybe some of you can identify with that. Jesus wants people who are willing to stick out like sore thumbs for the right reasons. Not people who are looking for attention, but people who are willing to be cold or hot for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And perhaps one of the main problems with the church today is that we've lost our passion for the gospel. I could say this unequivocally, non-hyperbolically. There is nothing in the world more important than the mission of the church of Jesus Christ. There is nothing in the world more important than the mission of the church in Jesus Christ. Nothing. The The great commission that we've been given to go out and make disciples, to baptize, to teach them to obey all the commands of Jesus, that's the most important thing in the world. That's the most important act that any of us are called to. But consider the way we talk about the thing we call church. This is who the church is. The gospel embassy of Jesus. But consider the way we talk about the church. We talk about the church and how it's, it's not really feeding me. You know, I, I go, but I, I, I leave really unfed. This, this isn't like a, a feedlot, what we do here. It is, it is a place where we come together in a huddle. We're not trying to fatten you up for slaughter. We are trying to get a boot camp mentality and get you ready for a battle that is already upon you and you may not even know it yet because there is something out there for you to do, a battle for you to fight, a, a game for you to be in the middle of rather than just being fed and happy and comfortable. That's not what this ought to be about. The Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ is more than enough food for you. And he doesn't just live in this church that you find him on Sunday morning. You can find him any day of the week. He literally lives within you, Christian. He literally has spoken to you through his holy word. There's a lot of it. Read it. If you want to hear from him, if you want to spend time with him, he is available to you. Or how about this one? The music just doesn't speak to me. Good. It's not supposed to. It's not meant for you. You're part of the choir. You're not part of the audience. You're supposed to be lifting up praise to God the Almighty. That's what we do when we worship. It's not a concert. Actually, it is. But there is an audience of one, and you ain't him, right? It is God alone who is the audience of our worship. And so when we approach God in worship, we ought to have that in mind. Or I just don't feel connected, or I don't feel fed, or I don't feel like the worship speaks to me, or the pastor yells too much. But you're saying that right now. I don't know. But you're saying one of those things... What's the object of those statements? I mean that in a grammatical sense. What's the object of those statements? You are. We are. We're the object of those statements. As the church of Jesus Christ, we ought to be the subject, the one doing the action. But the object of the church is always the person of Jesus Christ. The grammar of true worship always puts Jesus as the object. Everything that we do ought to put him as central to everything. That's not the case in the church in Laodicea. They're central, and they don't even know it. They don't even have enough passion to understand their lack of passion. They don't know what they don't know. Jesus says to them, you think you're rich, but you're not. You're really poor. This is the opposite of what he says to Smyrna, by the way. To the Smyrnans, he says, you think you're poor, but you're actually rich because of your belief in me. But to the church in Laodicea, no, you think you're rich because you have all of these things in your city, and you have worldly riches, but... In reality, you're poor. Think of the things that I said earlier that they were known for, their banking system. Jesus says, you're not rich, you're poor. 
uh, their textile industry, that they would make black wool. Jesus says, you're actually naked. Like, uh, you take pride in this, but and I want to give you white garments that will cover you and that will take care of you. Uh, they took pride in their medical school that was known for its eye treatment things that they would put together. Jesus says, in reality, you're blind, and only I have the kind of medicine, the eye salve, that will heal that problem. Jesus was what they needed, and they didn't even know how badly they needed him. A church that has removed Jesus from its central focus is a mere social club. It's not a church. Now, these are harsh words that Jesus has for the church in Laodicea. These are words that I'm sure they didn't want to hear. Usually when letters were sent in those days, they would take it to the main person in the church, the house church most likely, and somebody, because there would be only a few people who could read, but the one or two people that could would get the letter, they would read it out loud, and they would all listen. Can you imagine being in the audience when you're listening to this church and you're part of the church at Laodicea? This is not a happy thing to hear. But Jesus doesn't leave them in hopelessness. Instead, he says these famous words, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. It's a comforting reality to know that Jesus is still pursuing his church despite the fact that they turned their back on him. I want to point out something discomforting before we move on to the comforting note. In this metaphor, Jesus who stands at the outside and knocks, he's standing on the outside. Like he's not in the church in this metaphor. He's standing on the outside trying to get back in. Not that he needs it. He's not in need of their fellowship, but rather he knows that they need him. And so he's standing on the outside knocking to get back in to a place where he has been removed. I don't know of the seven churches. I don't know if there is a more apt metaphor for the American church today in the church of Laodicea at the end of Revelation 3. Because here's the thing I'm going to tell you as a pastor, let you see behind the curtain a little bit. Don't get cynical about it because I promise not that, that's not the goal. As the pastor of this church or any church, I could stand up here with a group of men and women who wanted to build something successful. And if we had the right amount of money and the right amount of energy, we could pull it off and create a, a worldly successful church without ever consulting God, without ever inviting the Holy Spirit into anything, and do it all on our own. Like, we could do that. We could create a successful church without Jesus. Now, that's, that's a problem, right? And I don't mean successful from the biblical model. I mean successful from a worldly model. We could, and it's been done. Both churches that are giant and churches that are small have done that very thing. And we could pull that off if we wanted to. And so, as we think about what it means to look alive on the outside, but be dead on the inside, to, to think everything is okay, but to realize that on the inside, there's something terribly missing. We can understand the reality of how Jesus today for the American church is standing at the door and knocking. Now listen, I don't think he caused the events of the last couple of years just to get us back, but I think through the turbulence of the last couple of years, Jesus has used that opportunity to knock at the door of the Western church who had kicked him out 
because we can do this on our own, Jesus. We got this. Like I got my podcast that millions of people listen to or, or we have the hippest worship in town or, or, you know, we're doing better than anybody else. We don't need you. And he's standing at the door and knocking and being like, hey, you think you're dressed, but you're naked. Hey, you think you see the situation perfectly, but you're blind. Hey, you think you're rich, but you're actually poor. But guess what? If you let me in, I'll come back in. Like, I'm not running away from you. I'm knocking on the door. I want to be a part of what you're doing. And then he gives the biggest promise of all of them that he gives to the seven churches. And he says to the one who conquers, just as I conquered. That's a big deal, even that. To the one who conquers, just as I conquers. What are you going to get to do? You're going to get to, like, share the throne with him. Seriously? Like, that's what he is going to gift us with? We don't deserve that, but we are going to be given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Not because we deserve them, but because Christ wants to invite us into that. Come on, guys. This is an amazing reality that God is inviting us into, even though we do not deserve it. Because in reality, it's possible for the church to fall so in love with the comforts of this world that it doesn't even notice the absence of its Savior. We can be so good at doing what we're doing, we don't even know when Jesus has left the building. Yet he stands at the door and knocks It's all about misdirected passion. Where are we directing our passion? To our careers, to political things, to things that don't matter? Or are we directing our passions to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Let me ask you this question. This is kind of the question I want to leave you with here in a moment. Do you believe the gospel? It's a simple question. Do you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ? If you answer yes to that, I want you to follow up with yourself. Where's that fruit in your life? Where's the fruit of that belief? Because biblical belief doesn't just mean saying, uh-huh, yeah, I agree. No, no, the Bible tells us that the, uh, the uh, demons believe and shudder, but so what? They don't do anything. Biblical belief results in biblical response. If you love me, obey me, Jesus says. Do you really believe the gospel? If so, where is that fruit? Where is that passion? Where is the boldness for the gospel? Maybe we've forgotten just how amazing the gospel really is. How amazing grace really is. Let me tell you a story. It starts before there was anything other than God. And in the beginning of everything, he decided to, out of nothing except his own divine imagination, create everything that exists down to the tiniest particle in your body that microscopes aren't powerful enough to see to the furthest, most gigantic thing in the cosmos that we have yet to even know exists. He created all of it with his word. In an instant, he spoke it into existence. Let there be light. And, and what the, I mean, it's just, it's not an understatement because it's saying it perfectly, but there's so much created, so much in that verse. Let there be light, and there was light. Like, if you've ever studied anything about the cosmos, what an amazing statement. It just suddenly happened. Light is pure energy in the universe. And in that moment, God spoke it all into existence. 
And after he had created everything else, he decided that there would be a special creation, one that he would put his thumbprint on, what he calls the image of God. God created man and woman, male and female, in the image of God. He created them. We bore God's image from the very beginning, and Adam and Eve and all of us through them decided at one point that even though God had made us in his image and had created a perfect world for us to live in perfect communion with him, we decided to turn our back on him and go our own way. We decided that we knew the difference between good and evil more than he did, so we would listen to ourselves and to the one who would tempt us rather than the one who calls us to truth and love. And because of that, all of us have sinned and fallen short of his glory. And the story could have stopped there, and someone argued maybe should have stopped there. But instead, God continues the story, knowing all along that this would happen. And he extends ways for the people of God to get back in right relationship with him. He even gives like step-by-step instructions. If you do this sin, like here's how you should commit a sacrifice, this exact sacrifice in order to get back in good standing with me. Uh, here's, the, here's the kind of sacrifice for this type of sin. Here's the kind of corporate sacrifice that all of you ought to do together, together on certain occasions in order to always be back in relationship with me. And what happened? Over and over and over and over and over again, people fell almost as if he was trying to say you can't earn your way back. You can't figure it out. I'll give you a manual on exactly how to do it and you're still going to fail to do it correctly. And again, maybe the story could have stopped there and arguably to some people should have stopped there, but that's not where it stopped. That's not where God ever intended for it to stop because he knew that we wouldn't be able to do that. And even though he knew that while we were sinning, even though he knew that we were going to be his enemy by our very own behavior, he indwelt our flesh and sent his only begotten son, his actual presence on earth. Colossians tells us that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. And so he came down to us, lived with the same temptations that we live with, lived with the same limitations, subjecting himself to those limitations that we live with. And then after he lived a perfect, sinless life, we killed him for it. It's not the Jews or those people. No, all of us bear that guilt. All of us bear that reality because it was on the cross that he bore all of our guilt, every single bit of it, to the point that it physically killed him and to the point that he looked up into heaven and experienced spiritual separation from God when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in those moments, he bore our sin and death once and for all. Why? Because we know that's not the end of the story. We know that he was dead for a few days, and then he wasn't all of a sudden. That he came back from the grave. That he himself, without anybody else acting upon him, resurrected him. Not back to temporary life to die again, but back to eternal life to never taste death again. And we are told through those who follow him that he is the first fruits of the resurrection. That you and I will be able to experience that same resurrection if we follow after him. Like we'll be able to experience that eternal life after death if we believe in and follow him and accept him as Savior. Not only that, he told us that the gospel isn't just waiting on the other side of heaven for us, but has come to you today to make a difference in your life today. Did you know that you can be from, free from sin today and not just in heaven? Did you know that you can experience the peace of God today and not just in heaven? He's not just waiting in the by and by. No, he came to give you an abundant life today and an eternal life in heaven. I don't know, but that's pretty exciting. Anybody else? If that doesn't make you a little passionate, I say this in love, but I say it with reality. If that doesn't make you passionate, something's wrong. Like, really. 
And Jesus might be on the outside of your heart, not on the inside. Knocking. Saying, if anybody will just invite me in, I'll come in and sup with him and he with me. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the best thing that's ever been said, written, or thought about. The most important thing that any of us can dedicate our life to. Do you believe that? Do you believe that gospel? And if you do, where's the fruit? Where's the boldness? Because I think the reality is a lot of the American church is like that arm that you awkwardly fall asleep on and you wake up at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning with that pain running down your arm thinking that something is drastically wrong, but it just fell asleep and it's trying to wake back up and you get in it. You know what I'm talking about. It just kind of flops around because there's no real feeling in it and you try to shake it back awake and you have that tingling feeling. I think we're going through a season of that tingling feeling of that pain because we've been asleep and there's an opportunity to wake up and do the right thing, to follow God, to be on fire for him, to be those who burn brightly for him, who speak boldly, or maybe to be those who speak coolly and offer encouragement to those who need it, to be either hot or cold, but not lukewarm, not nausea-inducing, but to be passionate for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you believe the gospel? If you do, where's the fruit? If there's none, if you're having trouble thinking of the answer, man, don't let that move you into a place of despair because he is standing at the door knocking. Today's a good day to get that passion back. Today's a good day to start a relationship with him if you've never done that. It's not the end of the story. There's still a lot of it to be written. And we can be that church that is bold for Jesus, that isn't cool, but that is passionate for the gospel. Do you believe the gospel? Then where's the fruit? That's what I want you to think about during this time of invitation. Anybody here who doesn't have a relationship with Jesus, I would love to tell you more about that, to show you how to start one today. And for those of you who do, I, I won't ask that question again because I've asked it 10 times, but I want you to think on that question. Let's stand together. I'm going to pray. Our band is going to lead us in a couple of songs after that. As they do, I'll be down here to pray with you. If you would like to do that, I'll hang around after the service to pray with you as well. If you'd like to do that in a more private way, If you're joining us online, God's calling, pushing you to reach out. Would you just send us a message or something and we'll have somebody contact you to have a conversation with you. I'm going to pray. We're going to worship and I want you to respond however God's calling you to. Father, we thank you again for this morning. God, we thank you for your son Jesus and your love for us. A love that we don't earn and a love that we don't deserve, but that you give to us freely. God, may we remind ourselves of how good that story is, of how amazing what you've done for us is. And God, may it elicit within us a response of passion. God, may you push us into the world to do your work and to do so with boldness, to do so with resolve, to do so with passion. God, we desire to be used by you. Plug us in, point us where we need to go. 
Show us where, show us how. God, we want to be that church that you use. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.